So, uh, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I am Stefan Dirksen, the pastor of the Four Winds Ministry here at Southland. <laughs> thank, thank you again for representing it like that. I'd lie, I'd be lying if I said I didn't enjoy that deeply. <laughs> but uh, last week I started a little mini-series called Emotional Maturity. And, uh, and what we kind of went uh, with last week, we started looking at the uh, six difficult emotions. And what I said about the six difficult emotions, by the way, if you haven't seen this message already, if you weren't here last week, if you couldn't make it, please watch it or download it and, uh, and listen to it or watch it online uh, because it's going to give you context for what I'm talking about today. I'm going to be referring back to it at numerous times. I'll give you a bit of a background enough that you'll be able to follow along, but you really need both pieces together. Uh, but what we talked about is God designed our brains to feel six main difficult emotions. I said they were difficult, not bad or negative, because bad or negative makes us think that they're bad or negative. And they're not bad, they're good, they're just painful, right? Just like many things are painful, just like the nerves in my fingers, they're good, but they give me painful signals if I touch something that's burning hot, right? So in the same way, we have emotional nerves that God's given us, they're good, they can be painful, but we just need to learn what kind of signal they're giving us and how to respond in accordingly, okay? So the six difficult emotions were... The first one was fear, and that warns us of danger. Okay, I'm not going to go through a big recap on any of these, but that's, that's just to summarize it. If you want to get the good, the bad, the perceived, all that stuff, watch last week's message. Second one was anger, and that tells us when we've experienced injustice. And the third one was sadness, and sadness was something that we feel as human beings when we experience loss. So obviously relational loss is the worst form of sadness we can feel, the deepest form of sadness when we lose someone that we care about. Uh, the next one, number four, was disgust. And that's when we've encountered something that would defile us. So it's defilement. It just means something that would make me dirty or impure, right? It could be an object, could be something gross like a dead animal, or it could be someone's behavior, right? Something that you feel could defile you if you would partake in it, okay? And, and then there was shame. And shame tells us when we've done something wrong, but it's more than just doing something wrong. It's when you've done something wrong that causes a break in relationship with others, with others. Okay, that's specifically what shame is there to tell you. It says you've done something that's caused you to break relationship with someone you care about. And then lastly, number six was hopelessness. And that was, uh, the, tells you when you've reached your personal limitations. So I gave the example of the, ta- of the uh, red line on your tachometer on your vehicle. It tells you when you've reached your vehicle's limitations. It's saying back off or you'll end up doing damage. Hopelessness is the emotion that tells us the same thing, right? And I said hopelessness was the main emotion that drives us to Jesus. Uh, because it tells us when we've reached our limitations, we can't live our lives on our own. We can't do relationships. We can't be righteous or good enough on our own. So we need Jesus. Hopelessness drives us to him. Okay, so what we said was uh, the first step of maturity, I gave you those three indicators and I'll review those in a moment. But the first step to maturity was identifying the areas where we're stuck. Once we identify, you know, one of the areas or six of the areas that were stuck, whatever it was, uh, then we bring those to Jesus. And we actually practice that here at the service. We did an inner healing practicum. And that's the first step to actually walking in freedom in any of these areas, right? And to maturing in these areas is bringing it to Jesus, have him speak your, uh, his truth into your heart. And then from there, then we actually have to learn the practical, you know, now how do I respond in a proper way that's healthy and appropriate and that sort of thing. So that, that's what comes next. And that's more so what we're going to look at this morning. So bow your heads, I'm going to pray, and then I'll start with the first point. Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you that you are good. I thank you that you desire a relationship with us. I thank you for what you did in Paraguay. That's just absolutely incredible. Jesus, I thank you for the favor that you've given us here at Southland, that you would choose to call us your people is a blessing that that you can't even put measure on there. So God, I thank you for that. Now I ask that you would speak to us this morning, each one of us, including myself, that you would minister to us 
We want to be impacted by your truth. We want to be drawn closer to your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So inner healing was the first piece. And the second piece that you have to understand is what I'm going to call capacity. Okay, so what do I mean by capacity? Capacity is just merely your limit. It would be a limit to how much emotional duress or pain that you can experience before you fall apart. So you have, you know, the inner healing to tell you, you know, to help you get unstuck. But even there, each person has limits to how much fear they can handle before they fall apart, how much anger they can handle before they fall apart. Okay, so we call that, that limit capacity. That's what capacity is. So capacity and difficult emotions. So capacity works right alongside inner healing in the way we work in emotional maturity, okay? So I'll explain how this works. Uh, a good picture, and once again, it's a simplified picture, so it's not perfect, but it gives you a good grasp, is think of it as map and fuel. Okay, so if I would tell all of you right now to get up and go to Thompson, some of you would know how to get there, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't apply, but if you were like me, you have no idea where Thompson actually is. You know it's a place that exists because you've heard of it, but you actually don't know which direction it's in, okay? That's me. So if, if you were like me and you didn't know, and I told you, you need to go to Thompson, I just know it's far away. If I told you you need to go to Thompson, you have a vehicle, but you don't have any gas, you just have fumes, you would need two things from me. You would need a map, because you would need directions, how to get to Thompson, right, if you didn't know. And then you would also need enough fuel in your car to get there. You need two things, right? And that's how inner healing and capacity works. So let's say anger. Anger was the problem before. You had no idea how to get there. You had no idea how to handle it. So last week, we identified, okay, that's the destination. You bring that to Jesus. Jesus speaks a word of healing in there. And he says, okay, this is how you handle anger. He gives you the map. Make sense? Okay, now you have the map, but you still need enough emotional fuel in your tank in order to get there without dying halfway on the road. Okay, you still need fuel. And our fuel is the capacity, right? So it's the capacity. And I'll explain how we grow that in just a moment. So I'm going to give you a diagram here. And this diagram, I didn't make this diagram up. I, I borrowed it from Dr. Jim Wilder of Life Model Works. And they, uh, um, I was learning from him. I was watching a DVD. And he actually used this diagram. And I thought it, it really clearly explains this point. Okay? So the, the vertical line there represents capacity. The horizontal line is pain. And that pain can be spiritual, emotional, physical. It's just emotional pain, right? Because all pain causes emotional duress. So it all ends up being emotional pain in the end. But it could be caused, it's hardship caused from anything in life. So if whatever level your capacity is, so that red line is going to represent your capacity. So that could be you, you could put yourself there. Okay, if that's your capacity there at that line, as long as the pain in your life doesn't exceed that capacity, you're totally fine. Now, you might not like be totally fine, but you won't fall apart at the seams. You're going to be able to handle it. You might not have the answer for what to do with it, but you're not going to fall apart. So relationally, you'll still be able to stay connected to people around you. Um, you, you won't freak out and do things that you're going to later regret because you're within your capacity. You have enough fuel in your tank to handle that, okay? The problem comes when we suddenly experience pain that's beyond our capacity, okay? So once the pain goes above our capacity, the gap between the pain level, wherever that may be, right, as long as it's above, and our capacity is what they call trauma. It's what we call trauma, right? That's when we become emotionally overwhelmed, okay? So that, it's that gap in between there. That's what trauma looks like. And what's important about this is a few things, but number one is everyone has a different capacity, and this is exactly why what's traumatic for one person isn't traumatic for the next. And why we have to be so careful when we're dealing with others, when we're passing judgment on others on, well, I've been through way worse than them, and I didn't do that, right? I know what it's like to, you know, have a little pain in my life. I've lost a loved one, but I didn't fall apart and go and hurt people, Right? And we kind of point our finger at people because we say, you know, basing it on our own capacity level, we assume that everyone should be able to do what we can do. 
But that's not how life works. That's not how people work. We all have different capacity levels. And in fact, our capacity in different emotions is actually different. We don't even just have one level. It's different. It's a fluctuating level. Okay? We don't always have the same amount of fuel in the tank. So we've we got to be careful that we're not quick to judge others, that we just understand when someone's overwhelmed, all we need to recognize there is that they're over their capacity and they need help. When we get over that spot, we need help from others. Okay? So anyhow, th- that's just my, my, my uh, quick side note here. So what determines your capacity? So I said it can fluctuate, I said it can change, it can move, different people have different capacities. What influences capacity? Well, there's a couple of things like genetics. Genetics actually play a role in this. So genetics will set a bit of a limiting factor. Not everyone can have the same capacity as others. So there are genetic pieces to it. Family history, you know, uh, things that you've experienced, you know, abuse, family, like problems in the past, good things, all that stuff will affect it. But if you would summarize and say, what is the biggest, largest contributing factor to how high or low my capacity is, it comes back to something that I talked about in February, and it comes back to joy. Okay, in February, I talked about the joy center, if you recall, about the four uh, levels of the brain, how you process information, and how God created us with a joy center. When that's strong, our brains grow, and we're able to handle problems in life better. Well, I mean, we're able to handle impulse control, right? This time, I'm just pointing to another area. Joy also increases our capacity. It's the main contributing factor to our increase in capacity, right? So, Joy. I just want to recap a little bit of what uh, joy actually is because it's important. It's not just a happy feeling. Often we get confused in that. Like joy is when I just feel really happy, like when I'm happy so I can feel joyful about my water because I'm thirsty and I drink it and I feel good so I'm joyful. That's not joy. You can feel happy because of water. Joy you can only feel in the context of relationships. And the reason that is is because you can only feel joy when someone is glad to be with me or you. Okay, so you obviously don't feel joy if someone's glad to be with me. I feel joy for that. You feel joy for you. Okay, you get, you get what I'm saying. So that's joy, all right? So joy is the primary means by which our brains grow, which is important, obviously, for any type of growth in life. But it's also the, uh, the primary means by which we grow our capacity. So joy is actually quite important. It's central to, to scripture or biblical teaching. Joy is the earliest emotion recorded in human history. Did you know that? Is that neat? And it's found right in the Bible, Luke 1.44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. John, the first time he was put in the presence of Jesus, leaped for joy in the womb. First emotion recorded for human experience. Isn't that amazing? Earliest, anyhow. Earliest emotion uh, recorded, right? So joy is this powerful thing that God created us to run off of. Joy is supposed to be our natural state. We're supposed to live out of that relational state of joy. Joy is supposed to be how we create healthy identities, how we learn who I am and how I relate to the world around me. Joy is how we create healthy relationships. It's supposed to be the basis for healthy relationships, right, that are love-based instead of fear-based. And like I said, joy is quite central to biblical teaching. You actually find it spoken of all throughout Scripture. In fact, I did a bit of a word search on there that's very easy to do with nowadays technology, and you just punch in joy, it comes up with it. So you look really smart because you have all these passages, but it took me two seconds, right? But anyways, I wanted to see, like, if joy is so big and our brains are actually operated to run off joy, then if I do a word search on joy, like, I, I already know it's in the Bible. Like, I've heard it all the time in there. You, you recall it, right? If you go through the word, you read it lots. But what kind of emphasis does the Bible put on joy would be the question, right? Because if it's this important to our biological makeup, you would imagine that God would have put some kind of emphasis on joy in the way he spoke of it. And what I found was quite surprising because it's exactly what he did. Romans 14, verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
So we're talking about one of the most important things in Scripture. What is the kingdom of God all about? It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy is relational. He wants us to have joy in the relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Okay? Scripture supports joy being relational in other areas. Uh, 2 John 1 verse 12, it says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. So what does that say about relationship? Well, what we know now is that the best way joy is communicated is through face-to-face interactions, right? It's through sound and through eye contact, through all of those things, hearing the voice tone, all that stuff, but face-to-face interaction is how joy is, actually com- is, is, how joy is communicated. And what's neat is, John writing in the, whole, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here says, if I wrote to you, I wouldn't be able to experience that joy. A letter wouldn't do. I have to come and see you face-to-face so that our joy can be complete. You see it coming together in relationship there. And lastly, I'll give you one more, and I could have given you, we could have spent the whole morning on just this one topic, joy, uh, but I'll give you one more, John 15, 10 to 11. It says, if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that your joy may be in you, or sorry, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. What is he talking about here? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. He's talking about relationship. He's saying, stay connected to me so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He created us to be creatures that would grow and and thrive and be strong based on the amount of joy that we actually experienced in our lives. And because of that, he doesn't just want us to have a little bit of joy down here. He says, no, 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 child, stay connected to me, please, because I want to pour my joy in you because I'm genuinely glad to be with you. But you'll only feel that if you're connected to me, so abide in my love. That's what he's saying right? And then his joy will be in us and our joy will be full, which will then increase our capacity. What's really neat about that increasing capacity is, you know what the, the, the uh, byproduct of that is? We're able to suffer well. That's another teaching that's principle or principle that's, uh, you know, foundational in scripture, right? We're told all over the place. Jesus often admonished his followers that they would suffer if they were going to follow him. And only those who persevered to the end, those who suffered well, would receive the promised crown. And here we find once again, so if, if we have joyful interactions with Jesus, if we stay connected to him and his joy is in us, the part of the brain that it actually increases is our capacity, our capacity to deal with hardship. We're able to endure more pain and hardship without falling apart. We're able to suffer well. Now, before you get the wrong idea here, I want to make sure that you're hearing me clearly. I am not saying that, you know, joy is something, so I spend time with Jesus now, I get enough joy. Once my capacity is as high as it can go, I really don't need Jesus anymore. Right? So like once I fill up my capacity, I got like lots of joy, now I'm pretty much, I can handle everything on my own. I'm not saying that, okay? Because even if you had the most joyful relationships on planet Earth, you are still going to experience things in life, and many people do, that they simply cannot handle, and it causes them to be overwhelmed. For instance, what about like uh, combat veterans who come back and are forever changed from the things they see? Is that because they were too weak in their joy? No, they experience things that are way beyond a human being's capacity to experience. They witness things that are too much for a human being. It's too much, so it begins to shut them down, right? It's very difficult. What about you lose a child or a spouse when they're too young, before their time? How do you, how do you hold together in that on your own? You can't. You can't. No one can hold together. Human beings were not made to, build, to go through that kind of suffering on our own, even with the strongest capacity, the strongest human being alive, falls apart at the seams when experiencing those types of traumatic events in their life. And then we can go to persecution. We don't understand that very much here yet, right? 
But other Christians or brothers and sisters around the world understand persecution very well. They understand it. How would you go through torture and pain, you know, being told all you have to do is deny Jesus without giving in when you're under that kind of duress and pain? How do you not give in? Humanly speaking, impossible. Humanly speaking, impossible. So, the first step is capacity. You've got to understand it. We should be trying to grow it through joyful interactions with Jesus and joyful interactions with others. But there's another piece of the equation, and that is Jesus and others can help me when I'm emotionally overwhelmed. And we're going to go back to that diagram now. And to illustrate this next point, I'm going to use the uh, relationship that a parent has with a child, okay? Because it really illustrates it well, but it really works with a lot of different relationships we have in our lives, okay? So, children have a very low capacity. And the reason for that is because you're born with zero capacity. You don't have any capacity when you're born. You have zippo strength to endure anything, okay? You're a baby, right? You're a blank slate. You're going to turn into someone at some point, right? So you're born with no capacity that has to be grown. For all of us, this is true. So when you're a kid, a child, you may have grown some when you're an infant. You know, mom gives you lots of joy when she smiles at you and changes your diaper, does all that kind of stuff. You get joy, you grow some capacity. But it's still very low, right? By the time you're five years old, you know, if your brother comes and plays a a trick on you and you're, you know, a little girl, five-year-old girl, brother comes and plays a trick. He goes and turns the light off in your bedroom while you're alone. Well, what happens? Child's freaking out, in fear, terrified of the dark, losing it, totally overwhelmed, right? So now the pain is over their capacity, right? So it doesn't take much pain, much emotional, emotional duress to put a kid in overwhelm, does it? No, because they have no capacity, and we have to understand this. Remember I said we have to be careful when we're judging others for what they should be acting like because of this whole thing of capacity? This is true with kids, for parents as well, because often how do we want to respond? They come to us terrified in the dark. You want to say, well, just suck it up, buttercup, right? Get back to bed. Like, it's not a, like, seriously, I understand. I love you, I love you, I love you. Now stop being afraid. Well, you can't tell them to stop being afraid. You can't tell them don't be sad. They have low capacity. Your job is to to help them increase their capacity, teach them how to grow that so that they can learn how to handle it in a mature way. It takes mature parents to do that, though, by the way. So what does a child do when they're they're overwhelmed like this? They naturally come find mommy and daddy, and they're looking for some help. Okay, so they come to mom and dad. Mom, let's say, has a higher capacity than the child. So like I said before, as long as the fear that the child is facing, you know, as long as it it doesn't go above the, the mom's ability and capacity to handle fear, what happens is the mom is actually able to borrow strength or lend strength to her child. Isn't that a neat concept? Lend strength. You can borrow strength from someone. They can lend it to you. Isn't that interesting? You're wondering how that works? Tell me you're wondering. I was wondering when I first learned this. And so I want to tell you. Okay, so this is really fascinating how God created us because he created us in an amazing way. And the more and more I learn, the more and more I worship. But um, this, what, what is actually happening here, we can actually lend strength or borrow strength from other people. They can lend it to us. Only when we're connected to them. You say, well, what do you mean by connection? Like, how does this exactly work? Okay, so there's a mutual mind level. You remember I talked about the four levels of the brain? There was four levels. It was the first one was the attachment level, then there was the amygdala, which is the giving and receiving. Then there was the mutual mind. And I said the mutual mind was where we, where we grow an identity, our sense of self and how we fit in with the world around us. It's also where we learn how to interact and relate to others, and we can share experiences with others. So that mutual mind level, which is your cingulate cortex, what it has the ability to do is connect to other brains. <laughs> Neat, eh? You're like, how does that work? Wireless networking, you all understand that, don't you? Right? <laughs> Wireless networking. We thought we, un- I mean, human beings, we're so, you know, we're so smart and intelligent. We discovered wireless networking like thousands of years after God already created it, okay? 
So how a wireless network works, you know, we have wireless networking here at church. If you have the password, you need a security key. If you have the security key, you punch it in, and you can, boom, you can access the internet here and access our server. That's how wireless networking works, okay? Your brain works the same way, and it also has a security code. The security code is bonding, right? When you bond with someone, your brain then allows you to connect that, your brain to their brain. And what happens then is you're able to share experiences. You're not able to, it's not words, so it's not like I can hear someone's thoughts, that doesn't work, but you can feel what they feel. That's what happens. So you share the experience of life, right? So you can be stuck in fear, let's say, right? If you're stuck there, and then telling your kids they shouldn't be afraid, your words mean nothing. What matters is that they feel that you're afraid, which then will cause them to be overwhelmed. I'm getting ahead of myself here. So anyhow, what ends up happening though is, so when the little girl comes to mom and mom isn't afraid of the dark anymore because her capacity's grown and she's matured as an adult, so she's not afraid anymore. The little girl comes to mom, she's bonded with mom, their brains connect like this. The, the little girl feels, she's feeling fear. So she comes and she senses that mom feels calm. Mom feels okay. That must mean life is okay. I can calm down. Does that make sense? So she calms down. Strength is given, right? That's good. When you're attaching to someone who is healthy and mature, this is a very, very good thing and helps kids grow because babies, like I said, don't have capacity. So we need to be able to get that strength from somewhere as we grow our own, right? Now, where this becomes bad is if the person we attach to is actually unhealthy and immature. So, for example, we'll use another example with parenting. If, if uh, you know, if I had a little boy, if, if my son came to me, and because he was overwhelmed in anger, let's say. He's overwhelmed with just losing it and breaking stuff. He doesn't know what to do, so he comes to me. He's looking for help. Someone help me get out of this. So he attaches to me. Now, if I don't know how to handle with my anger yet, I don't know how to deal with anger, what's going to happen is, as we connect, we share experiences. So I feel his anger, right? I don't get an, a message on the left side of my brain saying, you're angry, your son is angry. No, I don't get that message. What'll happen is I'll instantly start feeling overwhelmed and anxious. That's what happens, because I'll just feel it and I instantly feel anxious. They've actually done brain scans to show that this actually is what happens. When you connect, you share experiences. The same spots in the brain light up, okay? So what'll happen then is I'll then send a signal back to my son and then he'll feel overwhelmed. I'll actually add to his anger. So instead of making it better and being a calm source of strength, I'll actually make him even more overwhelmed. Now, if I continue to do this every time he connects to me, eventually what he'll learn is I'm not safe to connect to, and ultimately he'll learn I shouldn't connect to others when I feel weak. That's really dangerous because the whole human experience, we weren't created to be strong enough on our own. We're strong together, right? Where two or three are gathered, we're strong together. That's how God made us. Our biology even lines up with that. And even more so, we need Jesus. We need to lend strength from Jesus or borrow from him. Right? So that, that's how that works. Okay? So it, that's obviously a big, a big uh, it should be a big motivation for all the parents here to actually pursue emotional maturity. All the stuff that we're talking about. Become whole because you can't, you can't tell your kids the right message. They have to actually feel it from you. That You actually have to have it. Right? You can't give what you don't have. All right. So what about for the adults here that don't have kids? What do we do when we're, going, when we're getting overwhelmed? Well, in the same way that kids can go to their parents, adults too can connect to other people. So for the non-Christians, there's lots of resources, counselors, psychologists, doctors, that kind of thing that they can connect to when they're struggling, or mentors. For Christians, you know, we also have prayer ministers, that kind of thing, cell leaders, we have, and plus the other ones. But like I said, human beings, we're all limited, right, in our capacity. So no matter who you go to as an adult, no one's going to be able to help you through everything because, like I listed before, there's so many things in life that none of us were actually built strong enough to handle. Okay, so this is where the Christian really gets the edge in life. 
because in these moments, we're the only ones in, on planet Earth that have an unlimited source of strength. When we get overwhelmed, we can actually attach to Jesus and borrow strength from him. Is that amazing? It's amazing, okay? We borrow strength from him, which means we actually have the ability to go through the worst circumstances, the worst types of suffering, persecution and pain, and we can do it and suffer well. Isn't that amazing that we're designed to suffer well when we're connected to Jesus? I love that, okay? But that's because, by the way, when do candles shine the brightest? In the dark, right? Isn't that, isn't that how it works? Candles shine brightest in the dark? That's why he created us this way. He wants, to be a, wants us to be a testimony, a living testimony to his power, and that's actually best displayed when we're in darkness and still shining brightly. Okay, that's, how, that's just how it works. You know, uh, Nehemiah 8 verse 10 says, And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This kind of brings new meaning to that, doesn't it? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Literally, joy is relational. When you're connected to Jesus, when you bond with him like that, you can actually borrow strength from him and his joy can become your strength. I just love it that Jesus desires to help us in our weakness. You know, Scripture teaches us that when we are weak, then we're truly strong. This lines right up with the, the, the illustration I gave you. Right? When we're weak and we're overwhelmed and we connect to him, then we truly become strong because he has unlimited capacity, unlimited power. Okay? It's pretty incredible. All right. Now, I, I uh, talked to a hog farmer a number of years back, and it was quite uh, incredible, the story that he shared with me. I was, I was very impacted by it, but it's when everyone was losing their farms, or most people were losing their farms, and it was terrible times for a lot of people to go through. And I remember talking to him, and he said, you know, as, I'm, as my finances and everything has been going down like this, he said, my relationship with God has just been going up like this. And it's just been absolutely incredible. The times I've been having with God have just been filled with his peace and his joy. And it's been incredible. And he said, you know what's even better than the fact that I feel okay and I'm not falling apart while I'm losing everything? And I said, what's that? And he said, because I've had other farmers that are losing everything, that we're all losing it together. And they've now been coming to me and sitting down and asking, what, are, like, what is going on with you and why aren't you falling apart with the rest of us? Why aren't you stressed out? Why aren't you losing your mind? Like, what is it that you have that's so good that you have so much peace and joy in your life? See, and then he was able to use that as an opportunity to then point them back to his power source, which is Jesus. It's not about us. It's about him. And this flies in the face of a lot of that kind of theology that's out there that God just wants to bless us and make us wealthy and healthy and wise, all that stuff, because that's, that's, what, that's when we shine the brightest is when we have lots of material things. No, it's not. You know, who wouldn't have peace and joy when they have everything they ever wanted? It doesn't take a Christian to have joy and a smile on your face then. But according to how our biology is actually, how we were made, it does take a Christian to suffer well. That it does. Right? Because whenever, when the world falls apart, we all have limited capacity, and only the Christian can access the unlimited capacity and the strength that comes from Jesus. Okay, now, this being said, this is a wonderful thing, and I know you all love this already, right? But it sounds simple. Okay, so when I'm overwhelmed and stuck, you just go to Jesus and everything's going to be okay because I just get strength from him. And we have stories where that's happened and it's wonderful, but, I, but everyone in here can relate to times when it's felt like it doesn't work. Right? You have a bondage or you have a struggle or you're stuck, you're emotionally overwhelmed, it's stress, it's fear, whatever it might be, sadness, but you feel like you've given it all you've got. You've tried everything that you know how to try, and you just feel alone, you feel abandoned, you feel rejected, and you definitely do not feel any kind of strength coming from God. You feel like you've given it all, you, all the strength that you have humanly and you have nothing left to give, right? And I know that all of us in here, you might say, that sounds depressing, Stefan. It does, but it's true. All of us experience that from time to time. We don't always feel that strong power source flowing through us. So why is that? 
Why is it then, if it's so simple that if you're a Christian, you just connect to Jesus, he gives you strength and you can suffer well, why is it that so many of us fall apart at the seams when we get overwhelmed? Right? Why is it that we can't handle even the normal day-to-day tasks like marriage and kids and jobs and relationships? We fall apart and we fight and we bicker and we get stressed out and we worry, all that stuff. Why is that? Okay, and this, there's another piece that you have to understand, and it works, right, uh, it works right alongside this whole capacity thing and accessing strength from Jesus and others, and that's in understanding how your brain responds to being emotionally overwhelmed. Okay? So remember I talked about the mutual mind level, and that's the, it's a part of your brain that connects to other brains, okay? So that would be the relational part of your brain. Does that make sense? It's relational. It's the part that allows you to connect to others and share in strong relationships. All right. Well, when you are emotionally overwhelmed, the first thing that turns off is the relational part of your brain. Okay, so the relational, so as soon as you're overwhelmed, if you're overwhelmed in sadness or anxiety, fear, whatever it is, disgust, shame, hopelessness, whatever it is, if you stay overwhelmed, the relational part of your brain turns off. You might say, well, what is exactly the big problem with this? Okay, well, the problem is everything. You're, you're a relational being, and every part of who you are is, is, revolves around the relational part of your brain. Even, you know, things like your, your um, uh, sorry, your ability to make wise choices, your identity, like your sense of self, it's all tied into the relational part of your brain. Okay, so when the relational side of your brain turns off, you can't access strength from other people, you can't connect to other people, and you can't access strength from God. And this is precisely why religion doesn't change anybody, only relationship with Jesus transforms. Precisely why, right? Because you, you wonder why one person can read their Bible over and over and over again, but it's just religion, they have no connection to Jesus, and they remain completely unchanged and cold. It's because religion doesn't save you. It's relationship with Jesus that saves you. Right? When you're in religion, that, re- that relational part of your brain is actually shut down. It doesn't help you. Right? If you're going to actually have Jesus' power flowing through you, you need to actually engage with him in the relational part of your brain. It's how he created you. It's the part of your brain that he created to actually communicate with you as a human being. So it's pretty incredible. Okay? Do you remember the, um, remember the nail in the head video? I know I, re- I referenced it last week and only a few of you remembered it. I just thought it was the most brilliant video ever. If you haven't watched it, YouTube it. Do yourself a favor. It is, especially the guys. It is... It's quality stuff, okay? But the whole premise of the video is you get this woman that has a nail in her head, which is <laughs> funny, but, uh, but she's got this headache, and she's complaining to her husband about, oh, my head hurts, my head hurts, but I don't understand why, and he's like, uh, you don't understand why, like, what about the nail in your head? No, 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 it's not about the nail, it's not about the nail, and she's like, my head just hurts, and I just feel tired, and he's like, no, seriously, look at the nail in your head, sweetheart, and she's getting upset at him because he doesn't understand. And she's talking about how her, her sweaters keep snagging and she can't figure out why and she's got this nail in her head and she won't address the problem. So we can all relate to that if you're a guy here and if you're married. <laughs> My wife was in the last service, I said that here too, and then I retracted very quickly. <laughs> but I'm just going to let that one float. She's gone. That one's going to slide. <laughs> so we look at that and the reason why I'm going to let it slide is because I'll, I'm going to redeem the female, the female component to this, right? The problem actually, once you become overwhelmed, the problem actually does cease to be the problem. So when that female would have said, well, it's not, the nail in, it's not about the nail in the head anymore, she's actually right. If you stay stuck in an in a overwhelmed state, the problem ceases to be whatever caused you to be overwhelmed. The problem now is the relational part of your brain is turned off. That becomes the primary problem. Okay? So the first step to addressing that is actually learning how to turn that on. You remember I talked about the three indicators of maturity. First one was feeling the full spectrum of human emotion. Then there was uh, uh, maintaining relational connectedness and staying true to yourself and your values. Numbers two and three, you cannot possibly do. It's impossible to do if the relational part of your brain is turned off. Impossible. 
something that no, no human being can do. You actually require that part of your brain to perform the task because that's how you connect to people relationally, right? And you say, okay, I get it for the relational side, but what about I can't stay true to my values if the relational part of my brain turns off? That's right, you can't because your identity is in that part of your brain. It's in that part of your brain. You're, we are relational beings and even our sense of self comes through our relationships with others. Okay, that's just how we were created. It's quite fascinating actually. Okay, so when you're in the state you don't think clearly, you often end up blaming others for your problems. That's what people do when the relational part goes off. Everyone else is, is, is at fault for why I feel this way. If they would just do, be different, if this just wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't feel this way. Now they might be right in a sense because that might have been what triggered them, but where the error is by saying that if they just hadn't done that, I wouldn't feel this way, that's actually not the problem. The real problem, the pain that you're feeling and why it doesn't go away is the fact that the relational part of your brain is turned off. You need to address that first. That actually is the real problem now. And what's really important to note about this is staying in, in the non-relational mode actually causes you more pain. It amplifies whatever you're feeling, so it just continues to get worse. Plus, it cuts you off from all your strength sources. You can't access God. You can't access other people. You feel all alone. You feel abandoned. You feel rejected. You feel like, you know, no one understands me and it hurts. So what do we do? We end up turning to things and people and addictions to try to satisfy and soothe ourselves to get that pain to go away. This is precisely where addictions come from, okay? So talk about addictions to food, alcohol, drugs, pornography, sex, right? We might turn to unhealthy relationships where we're controlling and demanding and manipulative. We're trying to squeeze every last drop out of the person that we're with, right? Maybe you've experienced relationships like that. That's someone who's stuck in this area. They're trying to feel better and they don't know how. So they're trying to feel better, but they're not realizing the real answer isn't about, you know, it's not just about trying to solve the problem and make yourself feel better. It's actually to learn how to turn back on the relational part of your brain. If that part of the brain goes back on, life can actually begin to return to normal because God created us that way. So it makes sense if we do it his way that it works, right? And it does work. And I'm going to give you examples of how it works because it's powerful. I'll give you those examples right now, actually, after some water. Mm. Cold water, so refreshing. All right, so first one, okay? So understanding this whole thing. So the problem is actually relational, right? So the first example I'm going to give is, is of my daughter, Caitlin. And uh, I started learning this stuff I've been studying uh, from Life Model Works and a few other sources since uh, January is when I really started the bulk of it. And it kind of has changed the way I approach my parenting. So I used to be notorious in the household, you know, you know, dads are often the authoritarian more side, right? We lay down the law. But uh, I was also notorious for amplifying my kids' emotional overwhelm. So when they were overwhelmed, I would, I would most likely make it worse, okay? And the reason is because I didn't understand what was going on, right? So if they would come to me and they would be sad, I'd be like, well, what are you sad about? Well, I don't want to talk about it. Well, why don't you want to talk about it? Now I feel like they're slighting me. So then you're trying to like draw it out and you have to tell me. You have, I'm your parents, you have to tell me. So you're just forcing it out of them and it doesn't seem to work. Okay? I've had lots of trial and error. So I give you the trial and error so you know that I'm going to give you some examples where it's worked out really good, but know that it wasn't always that way. Now, on to where my success stories. Those are the ones I like to stick on anyways. <laughs> They're more fun to tell because <laughs> then you smile at me. So anyhow, I had Caitlin, and uh, Caitlin has this uh, like, thing with her sternum. As she's been growing, she gets a lot of pain in her sternum at night. Okay? It's intermittent. So what we had been giving her for a while was this heat bag. So we'd give her the heat pack, and then she would fall asleep with the heat pack on her sternum, and then she'd feel fine and she'd be good. So there was a couple of days that went by, and she hadn't used the heat bag. And then my other daughter, my younger daughter, because the two youngest are in a room together, and my youngest daughter, Sarah, said she had a leg pain. So then she wanted the heat bag, just like your sister had the heat bag on her sternum. Not a problem, because it wasn't being used, right? 
Not a problem except for the fact that Caitlin's hearing this whole conversation between mom and, and Sarah, right? So mom says, or my wife says, yeah, sure, you can have the heat bag. So Sarah gets out of bed. Mom and Sarah walk over to the kitchen. They go to the microwave, turn it on. I'm sitting in the living room reading a book and I am observing this, right? Knowing that something possibly could go wrong here because I'm kind of like, oh, this is... You just know as a parent, right? You know when there's a recipe for disaster. And you know, as soon as there's an object like this, it's going to go bad. Sure enough, I hear a little scampering. Caitlin comes out of her room and I see her walk, you know, down the hallway. She stops before the kitchen. She's watching with horror as mom and Sarah are together heating up this heat bag that's now going to go to Sarah. And I watched her like this, right? And I just watched her little lips start to quiver and her eyes fill up with tears. And then just, I saw her completely get overwhelmed. She turned around and ran off to her room. Okay, so what's happening here? Well, she ran off to her room. She got emotionally overwhelmed. What's the first thing that happens? The relational part of your brain turns off. So her capacity is low. So as soon as that relational part of her brain turns off, her natural inclination is to want to go be alone. All of us are like that, right? That's one of the signs of when your RCs are off or your relational circuits are off, okay? So she went to be alone. So I went and chased after her and I got her, and I got her to come and talk to me. So I said, so honey, I said, what's, what's making you sad? She said, I don't know. I said, do you not want to talk about it? No, doesn't want to talk about it. I said, okay, I understand that. I'm trying a new path here. <laughs> okay, I get that. <laughs> As I'm getting overwhelmed. <laughs> so I said, well, I said, honey, do you want to just come sit? Why don't you come sit on my lap? So she comes and sit on my lap. I said, okay. And then I just gave her a big hug. She's crying. And then I said, well, why don't you put your chest against my chest? So we did that together, and then we started breathing. I said, just breathe deep, and let's see if we can breathe together. So we're just breathing together. Then we recited a verse. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you, Lord. It's a psalm. So we're just saying it together. And then I noticed her breathing starts slowing down, slowing down, slowing down, and she calms down, and she's all of a sudden fine. So then I pulled her away, and I said, I kind of cracked a smile at her like this. I made eye contact and smiled, and then she giggles. She's like, <laughs> right, she giggles. <laughs> and I said, you feel a little better? She's like, yeah. I said, now do you want to talk about what's bothering you? Because still, we still need to address the issue, right? But remember, you have to address the real issue, which is the relational brokenness. That was the first, that was the biggest issue. Once you had that, it's much easier. So I started talking about what bothered her. And she said, well, it bothers me that Sarah got the, the heat bag. And I said, well, I understand that. I get, I get that, it, you know, it hurts when you don't always get your way, when something doesn't go the way you planned. And that hurts. I totally get that. But I said, you know what? I still love you. And we're still very glad to be with you. And we're proud of you. And she just smiled at me, gave me a big hug. And then she hopped off. And I'm like, you ready for bed? Yep. And she skipped off back to, back to bed. Now, you might say, well, that's good. I mean, that's fantastic parenting. Do you know that normally with her, that took about f- like three minutes, four minutes. Normally with her, if she, once she gets uh, emotionally overwhelmed in sadness, it was taking us upwards of half an hour to get her to calm down. And, use, and sometimes we wouldn't be able to do it. It would take sleep. All by changing our direction instead of focusing on whatever the problem was. Because what would, I mean, otherwise, what would we have had to do? Give her the heat bag and then Sarah would be crying? Buy another heat bag? That's what you're going to do? You're just going to go around trying to please everything like that? You're never going to answer the actual problem. The problem is actually a relationship. That's what's the problem. So when, when Caitlin came out and saw mom and Sarah with the heat bag, the problem actually wasn't the heat bag. The problem was because mom was giving the heat bag to Sarah, mom was showing favoritism to Sarah, which meant mom connected with Sarah and she felt like she was all alone. Does that make sense? It's relational brokenness. So she felt sad, felt overwhelmed, didn't know how to handle that. So then it took someone to step in and help her. Just like I said, Jesus and others can help us in our distress, right? I'll give you another example with my uh, oldest daughter, Kiana. And this one, it was with anger. So that's sadness. This one's with anger. And uh, she had been playing with Caitlin in the basement and she had done something really nasty. I think she had hit her or something. There was, an, there was a blow up, a temper tantrum blow up. And we had been having lots of problems with anger up until this point. 
And so I got her upstairs. I heard both their sides of the story. It was very obvious. You know, even she agreed I, I did the wrong. Caitlin was in the right. So I said, okay, well then, Kiana, you're going to have to have a discipline. Caitlin, you won't have to have a discipline. So I disciplined Kiana. And afterwards, she just got really, really angry at me. To which I was like, I was a little bit upset at first. I'm like, you're angry that you got disciplined? You, we went over this. You knew why you got disciplined, right? So then I, I recovered my bases with her to make sure she understand why she got disciplined, what happened. I'm like, did you think it was unfair that I disciplined you? No, no, she thought it was fair. I'm like, so you agree with what I did? Yeah. So then where is the anger coming from? What's the perceived injustice? And I didn't know. So I, what I did is I sent her to a room and I said, you know, honey, you're going to have to go to the room. I need to pray and seek the Lord a little bit and just see what, you know, how to deal with the situation, right? Because I couldn't get her to calm down. She was just a total temper tantrum, like seething, like it was bad, right? And I couldn't figure out what I had done wrong. I mean, I understood being upset about discipline, but I remember normally when I was disciplined when I was a kid, I felt sad, right? Sadness, is, right? Or sadness and then shame. You'd feel shame because you did something to break a relationship. So you'd feel those, but not really anger, especially if you felt it was just. So anyhow, I was praying about it and suddenly it just hit me. Remember, once they're stuck in overwhelm, the problem is actually relational. So as soon as I started thinking the problem is actually relational, then, then right away it was easy to figure it out. I was like, oh, I, see, I totally see what happened. So we, they come upstairs, it's Caitlin and Kiana and Daddy. So then I get the story straight and as soon as we realized that it was Kiana in the wrong, she felt like me and Caitlin were standing together and she was standing there by herself. So you're like, well, why is that anger? Well, it's anger because her little voice cried out and said, that's not fair. That's not fair. No one understands me. It's not fair that I'm all by myself. That's injustice. That's anger. That's why she responded in anger. She was stuck there. Does that make sense? So when I went downstairs, what did I address? I said, honey, I said, do you want to talk about your anger? She, wasn't, she didn't really want to talk about it at the time again. So I, once again, I just sat down, got her to sit on my lap, and I just started sharing with her. I said, you know, is this maybe why you're angry? Did you maybe feel like because you got in trouble and Caitlin didn't that me and Caitlin were against you, that we had sided against you? And she just burst out crying. Ooh, we hit the spot. She felt alone. See, that's the thing. As parents, as people, when we're helping other people, when you realize the relationship is actually the problem, it actually makes it much easier to, to deal with people because all of us know what rejection feels like. Everyone. We all know what it, it feels like to be misunderstood, to feel alone. We all know what it's like to feel abandoned. All of us do. Every single human being. It's part of the things that we experience. So you can actually relate to anybody in their pain because you get what they're feeling. Maybe not at the same intensity, but you can relate to a level. And that's what I did with her. And I said, sweetheart, I want you to look at me in the eyes and I want you to tell me if you still feel alone. And she looked at me and I just looked at her and we just stared for a little bit and she just started to weep and sob and sob. And I said, so what do, you, what do you see, sweetheart? Do you still feel alone? And she's like, daddy, it's too, it's too wonderful to explain in words. So what was she experiencing? Is it something great that I did? No, it was joy. She experienced joy. That's what she was experiencing. She felt like she was alone, like I had sided against her, that she was by herself. All I did was I, I reintroduced and I showed her, no, 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 I'm with you even when you're hurting. Right? You see how that works? You address the real problem, things go much smoother. We were able to work through it. Her anger problem is not nearly what it used to be because now we know what we're actually dealing with. We're not just dealing with the, circuit, the, the surface. We actually now go straight to the relationship. We understand what's bothering her. Okay? All right. So what do you do to turn back on your relational circuits? So the first problem is, so, so the first thing that we need to do is recognize that the problem is relational. This is actually the very first step that you have to actually do. So, like, when you're trying to turn those relational circuits back on, you obviously know now that this is actually important to do. Well, the first part of that is you actually have to admit the problem is relational, because this is going to actually feel wrong to you. Many times we just feel like, no, 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 the problem isn't my relational circuits have turned off. The problem is you, <laughs> right? That's how we feel in the moment, which is actually a sign that the relational circuits are off. 
So the first thing is coming into that realization that the problem is actually relational. So the, the quick self-test that you can do here to actually help you with this is ask yourself this question. Is the problem I'm experiencing bigger than my relationships with God or those around me? Ask yourself that question. If the problem is ever bigger than the relationship, your relational circuits are off. Think of that old hymn, right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Right? What is that all about? That the writer of the song had discovered just how your brain works. Right? But when your eyes, when the relationship's bigger, right? When your eyes are on Jesus, the relationship's bigger, the problems seem to be much smaller. That's how it works. Okay? So if the problems are bigger, then your relational circuits are off. The other question you can ask yourself is, do I desire to be with people that I normally care about or would I rather be alone? Right? If you're in that mode where I just, just leave me alone already, just like, just leave me alone, I just want to be by myself, that's a sign your relational circuits are off. And if the relational part of your brain is off, the real problem isn't that you need to calm down. The real problem is that you actually need to address the relational part of your brain. That's the real problem. Because until you do that, you actually won't ever overcome in the area that you're stuck. So then the question is, once you've recognized that the problem is relational, how do you turn your relational circuits on, right? And we turn them on through appreciation and worship. This is really fascinating to me. Now, there's a number of ways that I could actually go through and teach you on that you can turn them on. There's physical ways to stimulate, but the number one best way that you can turn the relational part of your brain on is through appreciating things and worship, which is fascinating because, once again, that's found throughout the entirety of Scripture. Right? We're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're told to worship the Lord, right? We're told, right? We're told to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, to be thankful for what the Lord has provided us. If we as Christians would actually just live that through, what it would do is it would keep the relational part of our brain on, right? Which would then keep us attached to the vine and we would have an unlimited capacity again. It's, it's interesting, many Christians, and I talk to them, right, and I've talked to many like this, that say, you know, if God would just fix this relationship or just fix this problem that I'm having or take away this porn problem or this addiction, if he would just fix this, then I would love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I would do this over here if he fixed me first. Isn't that what we want to do with God? Well, Scripture says it's the opposite. Scripture says, no, 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 you love me first, and then as you love me, I grow those things in you, and I can, I can give you the ability to overcome, and I can redeem you, right? So it's, Scripture says it's the other way, but now I'm showing you your biology actually lines up with the fact that you were created, that the only way to actually access strength is to first turn on the relational part of your brain, which is done through worship and adoration and appreciation, okay? So the only way, so if we're actually loving God with all the heart, mind, soul, and strength, we're being grateful and thanking him and worshiping him and full of adoration, that relational part of our brain stays connected to Jesus. When that happens, even when we're weak, we truly become strong, like Scripture promises. Okay, that's how it works. You can actually see this. Isn't that incredible, by the way? Isn't it? Like, I just love it how science backs up Scripture, right? Because we're just learning things now with science that Scripture has been saying all along, and I just love that because it's such a proof of our faith and all that stuff, right? It's, uh, it helps. So where do we find this in Scripture? Well, I can actually show you David returns to joy this way. David actually deals with his overwhelm. In uh, Psalm 13, 3 to 6, it starts with, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Wow, he's overwhelmed, eh? Like, we can relate to this. Maybe not to be running from our enemies. We don't get that necessarily here. They don't try to kill us. However, we can relate. He's overwhelmed. Doesn't he sound overwhelmed there? Depressed, discouraged, hopeless. He's in the pit. So he's beyond his capacity at this point here. Now watch what happens next. 
Starts with the declaration. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. So he's declaring, I've trusted in your steadfast love, but he's also turning it into worship, talking about God's steadfast love. Then he says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Now he's worshiping God for his gift, steadfast love and salvation. And now look at this last verse. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And you're like, where did the heart change come in here? Right? The guy starts off in the pit of despair and he makes a couple of declarations about God's salvation and steadfast love and suddenly he's talking like he's just a different tune. It looks like he, they actually cut and pasted the verse. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He's changed his tune. What happened? Appreciation. In the first one, he's overwhelmed. On a biological standpoint, he's overwhelmed. His relational part of the brain is shut down. So then what does he do? He starts to praise God. He starts to turn his eyes onto Jesus. What does that do? It activates that part of your brain, relational side of your brain. Once that's activated, he's already been turning his eyes onto Jesus, right? Onto God. And then God's strength flows into him and he's able to overcome and calm down and it's overwhelm. He's able to move past and that's why suddenly he's in a worshipful, good, normal state and he's once again back to his normal self. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. You see how that works? It's quite amazing, isn't it? Okay, we follow God his way and it, everything works. It synchronizes. So that's actually what we're going to practice here today. You can pull out the sheet that you haven't looked at yet. <laughs> I don't know if I told you not to look at it before when I started the message, but if I didn't, don't look at it until now. <laughs> now you can look at it. Okay, so pull it out. Now, if I'm just saying appreciation and thankfulness, like what's going to be the exercise here? Are we just going to list off three things we're thankful for and then be done with it? No. And the reason is because we've become very good at something called detachment, right? And what we do is we have memories and we have emotions and they're in different parts of the brain and we never let the two come together, okay? So, and we do this to actually protect ourselves from pain. So when I have a painful memory, I can look at it, but I don't feel all the pain associated with it. But as soon as we split those things up, what ends up happening is we actually lose the ability to attach even good emotions to positive memories, Okay, so it works both ways. So often we can even go through, I can tell my kids to be thankful, say, you know, be thankful, like, what's something you love about your brother? Um, he's nice to me, right? And it doesn't seem like the relational part of the brain's turned on, okay? It doesn't actually work that way. Okay, so what this exercise is, it's a little bit long, right? But what it's doing, there's six questions in there, but what it's designed for is to stimulate that part of your brain. So you're not just remembering something that you're thankful for, it's what are you thankful for and why, and really dissecting. So why are you thankful for it? How does it make you feel? How did you respond? How did your body feel, right? What are you learning to do? You're learning how to synchronize your body and your emotions and your memories and your mind through appreciation and through worship so that you can then turn that back to praise to God, turning on the relational part of your brain, accessing, accessing strength so that you can calm down in emotional duress, okay? That's really what we're doing. I tried this with my kids. I'll just quickly just tell you a fast story. I tried this uh, with my kids, just the difference, because like I said, you can say, say something nice about your sister and they can say it with a grumble, right? It doesn't work. So what I did, I had Caitlin and Kiana, they were fighting again. They fight, they're kids, okay? So I'm not, they're actually very good kids, but I just, for the sake of the example. But they were fighting outside over whose pile was bigger for raking leaves. I had them raking leaves with me. And whose pile was bigger and they're having a fight. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Can we not just rake the leaves and move on with it? Like, why does it have to be such a chore? Anyhow, okay, I'm like, bite my tongue. Come here, kids. <clears throat> I'm like, okay. Now what I want you to do is I'll, I each want you to think of one thing that you really love about your sister. Okay, so they each thought of one thing, but I didn't let them get away with it there because they could, and they were already just saying it kind of grumbly. Now I want you to think of a time, a memory, where you experienced that to be true. So then they each came up with a memory of when they experienced that to be true. And then I had each of them tell me and tell each other, how did you feel towards them in that memory? And they did that. And then I said, okay, so I finished. What am I doing? I'm, just, I'm making it more than just say thanks. 
I'm helping them connect, right, to why they're actually thankful. Because, they, because that felt good when we went through it. It made me feel full of love and connection, all that kind of stuff. Then I just said, okay, kids, well, how do you think you should respond to each other now? And I left it up to them. And you know what they said together, almost in sync, organization together, like almost at the same time? They said, why don't we make a pile together? And there you have the actual, like, that is the basis behind turning the relational part of your brains on. When they're, when they're off, we want to be alone, and the problem is bigger than everyone else around us. It's all about me. It's all about the problem. When they're on, we want to tackle problems together with others in our lives. So we just saw the natural outworking of that. So pull it out. I'm going to go through this, and we're going to work. There is a weekly challenge, and that is that you go and try to get five more of these memories, uh, and then share it with a spouse or a friend. And then when you start feeling overwhelmed, start accessing the memories. So at the end of the uh, practicum, I, what you're going to do is you're going to give it a name. And the reason why you, by the way, the reason you give the appreciation exercise a name is so that you can recall it faster. If it's a big, long memory, and you're trying to recall the big, long memory, it's very hard to access. But your brain works just like a computer. If you have a document you want to save, you give it a name that makes it easy to remember, right? That makes sense? Okay, so with the appreciation, you're remembering God's good gifts. It could be a relationship with someone. It could be something like a cup of coffee in the morning, right? It could be a time when you played ball with your dad or a devotional time where God gave you a, pro a promise. You felt alone and he said, I'm always with you. And it impacted you. So whatever it is that you're appreciating, we're going to start with number one. I'll lead you through it. And then you just write down what you get and then do the weekly challenge at home. Jesus, I just want to thank you that you are relational. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that your desires to that we could actually experience your joy. I thank you that you desire to make us strong even in our weaknesses. Thank you that you are for us and not against us. Now, Jesus, I ask that you would help us grow in this area of worship and adoration and appreciation so that we can learn to keep that part of our brain on because it's not just about keeping the brain on so, so we feel better about ourselves. Jesus, we want to stay connected to you because you are everything. You are true life. And in you is, is everything that we ever needed and wanted. So that's why we want, to, we want to actually stay connected to you. We want to serve you better. We want to be able to suffer well so that we're a good testimony when people see us that they see you. So God, I ask that you would help us now as we grow in appreciation and thankfulness. So Jesus, I just ask that you would show each person here just a memory when they felt appreciation for someone or something. Could just be playing ball with your dad, cup of coffee, devotional time. Might be a worship time before a service. God impacted you. Whatever it is, you just write it down in, in just a, as few word as, words as possible. Just once you write that down, then uh, just reflect on that moment, for a, on the memory for a moment. And then just write down what are the emotions that you were feeling then? Feel happy, peaceful, hopeful. You feel like you belonged, thankful. Maybe you felt understood for the first time. Just write those emotions down, number two. Jesus, I just ask that you would help us continue here, just 
pulling together all these pieces, how did our bodies feel during that memory? Did we feel tense and uptight, or did we feel relaxed, calm, energized? And then what did, what did you do when you felt appreciation? So in that moment, when you felt relaxed, you felt good, peaceful, you felt connected, did you smile? Did you encourage someone? Did you help someone out? all you did is smile and enjoyed the moment, that's fine. So once again, lots of questions, but it's just helping you really connect this part of your brain. You'll actually find thankfulness and worship actually becomes a lot more automatic when you learn to do this. It's a skill that your brain will learn. It'll become very automatic. You'll find your worship will actually grow. And when you're done that, just write down a name of your story. The first one there, playing ball with my son, I had uh, um, one of my stories is playing ball with my dad. And I went through this step there, and it's something that I've accessed before. When I'm getting overwhelmed, I can remember those things, the relationship I have with him. I have times with the Lord. I have different relationships in my life, and all of them I turn back into worship to God because whether he was the one speaking to me directly in the memory or whether it was a person that he put in my path, in my family, or an experience I had, something that he, all good gifts, it says in Scripture, every good and perfect thing comes to us from God above. So when we're learning this and practicing it, when you do those five memories on your own during the week, then you bring it all back into worship and you thank God for whatever he showed you. So you're, you're, the name of your story, just make it short, just so it's enough, like a computer file so you can remember it. You'll be able to access it easier in times of overwhelm then. Jesus, I just want to thank you for all of your good gifts. I want to thank you for the best gift of all, and that is that you would allow us to be called by your name. We would be able to be called Christians. What an honor to be adopted into your family. You've given us so many good things. And Jesus, we should, our hearts should already be full of gratitude and gratefulness and worship. That's the mark of a Christian, it should be. Jesus, I just ask in some of these areas, sometimes, God, we've lost that gratitude, that attitude with just of gratefulness in life. I just ask that you would stir that up in us again, that we would become a people that would be just, a, just full of worship and adoration and praise for you. But I just pray that you would strengthen us, strengthen our capacity, strengthen us in our joy and our connection to you and to others so that we can suffer well. God, I'm just asking, and I thank you that you've given your favor to this church. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would walk with each person as they leave here today. In Jesus' name, amen.